Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello, my name is Adam Thier, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Tech Roundup Podcast, which is part of the Regulatory Transparency Project's ongoing fourth branch podcast series. Our Tech Roundup podcasts feature leading policy experts debating the major legal issues surrounding various emerging technology industries. On today's show, we will be discussing a topic that has been the focus of other Federalist Society podcasts, videos, and events for the years. Namely, what are we to make of the growing concerns about tech companies, digital competition, and antitrust enforcement in particular? A so-called tech lash is sweeping the land, and plenty of pundits and politicians are calling for increased interventions. Lawmakers in Congress and state AGs have proposed actions, and importantly, these calls for action are being heard from politicians on both the left and the right. Today's episode will feature a debate between two of the leading experts on antitrust law and economics who will help us better understand why this is happening and offer their differing perspectives on whether it's a good or a bad development. Joining us first today is Hal Singer. Hal is Managing Director of Econ One Research and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Business. And we're also joined by Jeff Manning, who's the president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. So, gentlemen, let's begin with the breaking news of the week. A coalition of 50 attorneys general on Monday announced that they are launching an investigation into Google for potential violations of antitrust law. A story in the Wall Street Journal this week about the AG investigation began by asking the following question. Are big technology companies using monopoly power to defend and extend their dominance over the U.S. digital marketplace? So, Hal Singer, what's your answer to that question? So, thanks for having me on. And I think the answer is yes, they are using monopoly or monopsony power to extend into uh, these ancillary markets. Uh, The question is whether or not antitrust law is up to the task of disciplining them or policing them. And uh, as, as your listeners may or may not where the monopoly leveraging theories are largely dead in, in antitrust. I, I recall being told by an attorney not to let the phrase uh, come out of my mouth uh, during, during one hearing. Uh, and, so, and so the problem, that, and, I, and I, I have a sense that Jeff is going to agree with me here, is that if, if, you can't, if you can't attack, say, Google uh, for, for leveraging its power in search, say, into some ancillary market, um, what should you do, if anything? And that's how I kind of like to tee up the question. And just to broaden it out just a bit before I turn to Jeff for a response to that same question, you've also stressed some concerns not just about Google, but also about Amazon, and I know others have been concerned about Facebook. So there's a question here of maybe it looks like Google's first in line for something, um, but would you extend this to include other companies? I would. I mean, if, if I had my way, if I could write the regs, of course, it wouldn't be Google-specific. I don't think you could ever pull that off. I think it would be, it would be applicable to any dominant, uh, uh, vertically integrated online platform. And I would, I would extend the ambit far enough to include, shockingly, Internet service providers. Uh, I don't think that we're ever going to get a solution on the net neutrality front uh, at the FCC. And so, to me, it, it just seems... It seems like it would be odd and, and difficult to defend if you tried to narrow it to just one, say, platform provider. Okay. All right. So let's turn to you, Jeff, and have you answer that same question about whether or not these technology companies are using monopoly power to uh, defend or extend uh, their dominance in the U.S. digital marketplace. Thanks for having me on. And uh, so, uh, not surprisingly, my answer is, um, is no. Um, I think it's better to frame it as they're 
they're using innovation and they're they're building their products um, to offer more benefits to consumers, which has the side effect of expanding their size, but um, uh, size isn't everything. And uh, uh, it's been well understood in antitrust for quite a while that that having a, a monopoly, not that any of these firms do, but ha- being large and existing in a concentrated industry is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, that's particularly true if, if it arises from the fact that consumers really like what you're offering. And um, it would be really hard, I think, to look at these companies and suggest that they are... Uh, adopting tactics and spending or not spending money in in ways that are geared toward uh, harming consumers they're investing more in r&d than than just about any other companies in the world they're continually expanding their offerings and um, expanding the both the range and the quality of the literally free services that they're offering to consumers um, I think the story, the monopoly stories and the monopoly sort of leveraging stories um, are really just so stories. They are they are convenient theories um, that one could possibly put into a, a, a really stilted model. Um, but if you step back just a little bit, I, I just don't think they really uh Okay. So let me, let me interrupt you because I want to, I want to ask how, what you're, what you're getting at, Jeff, is really the question of consumer harm, right? You're, you're basically saying it's not, there's not a clear consumer harm here, which is at the heart of antitrust and, and how, what would your answer be to Jeff and to the question of where is the consumer harm here? It's a great question. And it's, and it's why uh, antitrust is likely not the best fit for certain types of conduct. Jeff likes to talk in terms of, of largeness. And of course, no one's going to argue that because you're large, that's a violation of any antitrust law. So let's we have to focus on the conduct. What 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 sort of conduct are they engaged in? And what struck me before we get to the consumer, let's just talk about what the AG's case is about because it's not the consumer side. I thought it was very interesting that the AG's um, when they when they laid out the theory of the case, um, they focused on the advertising side. And this made infinite sense to me because of course, if you're going to use the tools of antitrust, you need to connect some sort of restriction or restraint with a competitive effect. And when you hire your economists, the typical thing they want to do is they want to go look at price effects, right? Price or output effects. And we've got prices on the advertising side. And so the, the you know, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal article. The, the theories that are being teed up is that Google is inserting certain restrictions in agreements with third parties like advertisers and publishers to make it difficult to use uh, rival services, rival services of Google's uh, in the ad network chain, right? Um, and, and so my, my reaction there was that it makes, it makes infinite sense that if you were to go after Google um, using the lens of antitrust, you'd want to focus on, on the area where the, pri- where the harm is going to manifest itself as a price effect and, and this is important, where the conduct goes outside of the firm boundaries. Another, another difficulty here in, in attacking uh, this, sort of, this sort of conduct, um, and when we're about to now flip over to the consumer side, is anything that happens inside the firm that's internal to the boundaries is largely sacrosanct in antitrust. Courts are loath to go inside of the firm and, and say that you can't do that. You can't do that to yourself. Uh, and so uh, I, just to kind of put a cap on it, the, the AG's case, is, is at least initially is going to be aimed at the advertising side for those two reasons. Harm manifests as price, price effect, conduct external to the firm. 
But okay. certainly not the when entirety think... of of the um, of the characterization of the case that's been presented. N not only is it not the entirety of the case that the AGs presented, but it's certainly not the uh, underlying uh, the underlying issues that are animating both the broader tech lash and this case in particular, or these cases or investigations in particular. And and one of the and. I don't disagree with you that I, I've actually said for many years that, um, you know, if there is a place where there might be potential harm here, it is obviously uh, on the advertiser side. But if that's the case, um, they have a terrible case. I, I, you know, the, the extent and price and quality of advertising that these platforms have enabled um, I think can only be seen as uh, increasing exponentially over time. I, I've never heard advertisers uh, uh, at the forefront of complaints. Against All right, let me get companies. let me get Hal's take on that, Jeff, because th we're getting to the question here of relevant market. Yeah, and 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 so Jeff said um, something to the effect of the only harm here is on the advertising side. So it's the only harm. I'll, I'll agree with him to this extent. It's the only harm that I think is cognizable under the antitrust laws. It's the only harm that you could hire up an economist and go out and connect the restrictions and the contracts with a certain effect. But where, where Jeff and I disagree is whether or not there's any harms on the consumer side. And so I think there are. Uh, Jeff thinks not, but I'll let Jeff speak for himself. But, but unfortunately for antitrust, those harms do not manifest uh, as a short-run price increase or output reduction, right? But when Google steers um, a search uh, that used to go to some independent third-party site uh, to, to Google's own affiliated site and uh, takes up all the real estate, say, on a mobile, on a mobile uh, interface, uh, thereby resulting in fewer clicks on the, on the, on the independent site, mm -hmm. it's very hard to make a case of, of an immediate short-run consumer harm. Yelp is trying to argue that there's a degradation in the quality that that Google is um, is is raising itself in the rankings uh, by by crediting its affiliation, the affiliation of its properties, and and sacrificing quality. Um, but but that's not the case that I want to go into court with. I don't want to argue that that there's this quality diminution and that that ought to be what what animates the harm. Let me just say it, and I'll turn it over to Jeff. The harm to the extent it's occurring is a future harm. Economists refer to it as, a, as an innovation harm. And the idea is that if, if the independent uh, merchants, if they're on Amazon's platform or websites, if they're on Google's platform, uh, if they're observing these, I, I use the word invasions, which drives Jeff crazy, but we'll, we'll come up with a nicer name. Uh, if they uh, these uh, these appropriations, these um, uh, right uh, of, of vertical spaces, uh, what, what used to be provided by independents now provided by by the platform. If they see that that it really is not even worth it to try to compete against Google because Google and these platforms have so much power to slant the playing field in their favor, the concern that we have is that future generations of edge providers might throw in the towel. They might say, "Why would I? Why would I? Why would I go for that?" And we will never see that. Sure. You will never see that harm in the short how, run. It's a it's a reduced choice in future the, the, periods. The problem, how the problem, how is is so. You know, of course, we, we've had this argument multiple times, and and um, the problem is there's a good reason why uh, it's a difficult antitrust case to bring, and that's because it's difficult, if not impossible, to identify any actual harm. Now, you have a, a sort of uh, a theory, and you had a lot of mites and coulds in there in what you were saying, but uh, the idea that it is possible that this could happen 
is not sufficient, certainly, to, to win a case under antitrust law, but it shouldn't be sufficient basis for regulation or or any other sort of mechanism for um, cabining what these companies do. So you have a, a sort of presumption uh, built into your approach to this of this this future harm. Um, and the reality is that there is not only no evidence of that, but the evidence, the, the things that you point to as being, um, you know, uh, sort of potential examples of this that maybe with more exploration and better theories could could produce some evidence of, of this harm. They aren't even examples of this. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we can get into some of those. But uh, I, I don't disagree with the theoretical notion that you could have constraints that operate to to um, to impose this kind of future harm. But uh, it actually matters whether you can demonstrate that it is present or not, or even likely or not. And uh, the fact that you can you can concoct a theory that suggests that it could be is simply not a sufficient basis for for intervention. How can you give us example? Can you give us examples of very specific types of harms we might be seeing today for specific companies? Now, maybe that's difficult because we just don't know. They no, we can see today's we can see today's harms to rivals. But I'm with Jeff on this point that that alone. Um, would not constitute evidence of anti-competitive effects, right? Antitrust is very clear about this, that we can't take the harm to the rival uh, by itself as a proxy for consumer harm. So yeah, we could go through, and I've written up, I've written up examples in my writings of, of episodes in which Amazon or Google decides that they're going to they're gonna step in to some vertical um, and, and basically steer the search uh, to their own. Amazon is doing it with its private label products. Google's doing it. I gave you the example of local search. Uh, they're in trouble for a shopping case in Europe. But um, there's a paper uh, by two economists, uh, one, one's at Harvard, last name is Zhu, who looks at what happens uh, to an independent merchant after Amazon invades its space. And they tend, with greater likelihood, they tend to exit the platform. And what is that telling us? It's telling us that it, it doesn't make sense to compete against Amazon in a vertical when Amazon also controls the platform in the absence of any kind of rules or ground ground rules. No, that... it, it, it doesn't tell us that. It, it doesn't tell us that at okay, all. Okay, why, why do you um, think they're leaving, Jeff? You, you leave you, because you, you have, expect you the have... profits to be negative. That's how you get out. No, but that, that may be the right, that may be correct that, that, that those inefficient competitors <laughs> expect their profits to be negative, but but you're, you're tying their leaving the market to two things, to the vertical conduct of the platform, the platform being both a platform and a competitor. And you're, you're sort of, you're, you're falling prey to the Nirvana fallacy. You're assuming that there is some identifiable, uh, optimal that includes all of those companies that are excluded, but you cannot make that assumption. So if Amazon, for example, um, is selling private label products that are sourced from the exact same manufacturer that an independent seller was selling them on Amazon's platform and is selling them more cheaply and distributing them more cheaply um, and buying more of them. It is leading to increases in output. It is leading to lower prices. It's probably incentivizing the creation of more of those products. And the only entity that is potentially harmed here is a single or maybe couple of uh, independent, you know, third-party retailers who were using Amazon's platform to do what Amazon could simply do better. The fact that they may not exist doesn't affect the availability of the product or even the extent of future innovation in the okay, product. Jeff, let me get let me get Hal's answer to that. 
Yeah, Amazon is doing it to the brands as well. It's not just some reseller of some of some uh, third-party manufacturer brands. Uh, Amazon is not choosing. Amazon is not choosing these. Oh, how about uh, the? I don't know if I've, I've I list examples in the, my American Conservative uh, article of of where, where they've gone. Yeah, but but Jeff, it's not hard to find examples of of this of this. But my my point is that Jeff thinks that the reason why they're gone, it's a good thing that they're gone because they're inefficient. That's not what the that's not what the research is telling us. No, Amazon no, I didn't say that's true. Amazon didn't, finds right, these right. people. I, I didn't say that that's the fact. No, you said, you said, said, said Amazon's said blowing out these inefficient that. providers. That's not why Amazon's no, going into the if, space. I said, hold on, if. hold on. How? 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 Hell, I said if. I mean, part of, part of what we have to establish here is that th- there is a kind of standard and burden of proof. So I- I'm not saying that I know with absolute certainty that the story you're telling isn't possibly the case. But you have a you have to reach a sufficient level of proof to demonstrate that it is at the very least more likely than not that your story is the one that's actually prevailing. So before you can point to one of these examples, you have to grapple with the fact that it may in fact be an increase in efficiency, an increase in net benefit for those firms not to be operating on Amazon's platform. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but you you're the one who has to address that. Yeah, I think that I think that Amazon finds the vertical that it wants to invade based on how successful uh, that vertical is being uh, when you use the word inefficient. Maybe you didn't mean to do this, but it, it, it created this idea in my head that that they're kind of taking out the schlocky uh, uh, sellers. But that's not what's going on. They're 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 looking at what's popular, and then they approach the brand and they say, either you're going to go on my terms or I'm going to invade your space with my own. And and what's interesting is that um, I what I want to grant Jeff is that is that in the short run, if all Amazon is doing is substituting its own product and you hold quality constant, hold the price constant, that you're not going to have a short run consumer injury. And it's not going to make this good fodder uh, for antitrust. The, the concern, and I, and I would hope that Jeff could at least, uh, at least contemplate this as a, as a theoretical matter, is that um, if Amazon is left to, to invade whatever space it, it wants, it could make the ecosystem so uninhabitable, so hostile, that that in future periods, uh, uh, independent merchants might throw in the towel. They might just decide that they're not going to they're not going to make a run at right. this anymore. But, l- hold on, let me let me jump in here because we, our conversation is already something's happened to our conversation. It happens at a lot of conversations about these issues. We've moved from opening about an investigation being launched into Google into a discussion about specifics about Amazon, <laughs> and and of course it's all too often the case that we also will have Facebook enter this discussion at some point because there's antitrust threats to them. So there are unique circumstances for each of these companies, but. It seems that the momentum right now is behind doing something about Google. And so let's try to keep focused on that because that was this week's news. So what is it specifically? I mean, let's be clear. We all agree Google's, you know, uh, market power in the field of search, if you're just doing the numbers, is pretty significant here and even more significant in in some countries abroad. Um, What is the argument in particular, for taking down Google right now that the AGs are making, how and do you support it? So there's there's three stories, and I, I agree with Jeff that when I focus on advertising side, that's only one. But there's three stories that at least got mentioned in the Wall Street Journal. I do want to stress that both Tony Rome in the Washington Post and Brian Fung in CNN also stressed advertising. And I don't think this happened by accident. I think that they knew what the pitch was going to be. Before, the day before the pitch happened. So we talked about the advertising one, and just quickly again, these are, these are restrictions that Google puts in its contracts with advertisers or publishers to ensure that you don't do business with a, with a Google rival in the, in the ad 
ad networking uh, chain, okay? There's another sim, and I actually think that has legs for the reasons that I explained before. There's another uh, external restraint that Google engages in with respect to phone makers, and you probably have heard about this case in the EU, but this is, this is where they tell the phone maker that if you're going to take certain elements um, of our package, then you also have to take you know, the, the browser, the internet browser, for example. Um, and, and again, because these are restrictions that go outside of the firm boundaries, mm -hmm. and because it's possible that you, that you could measure the effect in terms of prices. It's a tying right? argument, right? Right, right, a tying or bundling argument, yeah. that's right. I think that, that those two, those two accusations have legs, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and I think I'm in agreement with Jeff. We, we disagree over whether or not there's any harms here. But the third element, which is search discrimination, and which is this notion, again, that Google inserts itself at the top of the ranks in search and can basically take out any vertical right. that it wants. And it's merely shifting eyeballs in the associated advertising revenues to a Google-affiliated property. Mm -hmm. That's the one that, that I think can't uh, survive, at least not on its own. Maybe you can splash in an innovation theory of harm and kind of like page 30 of your complaint, but you cannot go into court. So is this why, hell, you've suggested we move away from antitrust and maybe towards an yeah, alternative and not, not type of remedy? Not just me. You know, right. No, there, I know there's some, not just you. Many yeah, there's some, there's some important antitrust voices sure. out there. Like, but, but who say it's not antitrust law per se as a, as a traditional tool? We don't use an alternative regulatory framework or approach to deal with this problem. Correct. And so I'd point you to just two quick Before things. Go, oh. can, I, can I respond to the theories of harm under okay. the, uh, yeah, sure. the, the, the case that's been brought. And then I, do, I, we, I definitely should have that conversation. So on the advertising uh, uh, argument, um, my understanding is that um, uh, most of the restrictions that uh, are potentially at play here are not used by Google anymore and haven't been at the very least since the uh, FTC settlement, um, but I think even plausibly before then. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I suppose that it's um, it's not the end of the world to have an investigation to see if they are still employing these. Not that I'm conceding that they would actually be harmful if they are, but um, my understanding is that they don't use them at all anymore. Um, on the uh, on the phone makers uh, uh, argument, the tying argument, um, you know, the, the the problem here is that um, Google employs a very specific business model. It doesn't charge directly for its uh, services. It, it raises its money through uh, advertising and primarily through search advertising. So um, it, it, you know, has created this massive ecosystem. I mean, Android wouldn't exist were it not for Google. I mean, essentially Android would exist, but it, it probably wouldn't be anything like it is today. It certainly wouldn't have had the level of investment that uh, Google has put into it to say nothing of all of its other products. If they couldn't somehow leverage those to find a way to realize a return on on search, which is exactly what they do. Now, if, again, the problem here is demonstrating that, the, um, that that world is worse and more harmful to consumers than this theoretical world that probably would never exist in which essentially Google is forced to sell its products for a direct price and, and can't try to tie them together in order to receive revenue from one product while giving away another one. There's just no reason to presume that that's a, a bad thing. In fact, there's every reason to presume the opposite. And then on search discrimination, which will lead us into discussion of, uh, of Hal's uh, theory outside of antitrust, um, 
I just want to reiterate, Hal's exactly right. I, there is no reason to think that there's uh, that there's harm here. Um, you know, you look at cases like the the Foundum based case, the the Google Shopping case that was brought in Europe, um, and you look at the kinds of arguments that Yelp makes, for example, um, and you what you see is um, harm to certain competitors who anticipated, who maybe built their products, anticipating a world that previously existed. They said, you know, look, here's how Google operates. We're going to build our product so that it um, can succeed on the basis of this form of operation. Google changes the way it operates, no longer offers just 10 blue links and now offers um, various things uh, in the, the universal search box at the top of its search results pages. And some competitors or, or uh, complementers who previously operated fine under the previous model are injured by that. They can't operate the same way. That is not, in no way does that demonstrate harm to consumers. In no way does that demonstrate harm to competition. Um, it demonstrates harm to certain competitors. Meanwhile, there's corresponding benefit to other competitors. Um, and, you know, you go, you look at the EU's case, the Google search case, and they made an, you know, 200 pages of evidence of harm to a certain subset of competitors and no evidence whatsoever of actual harm to consumers. Now, that may be a fault of the antitrust regime. So, so to move into a discussion of the regime that Hal would like, I think first requires um, him setting the stage for why he thinks it is sufficiently likely that this actually is harmful, that it is worth setting up an entirely new regime to get at this conduct that is not a cognizable harm under antitrust, but that he would simply sort of okay, make let, a let, harm. Let's let Hal set up that and tell us what his proposal is, because I've heard of your uh, the Singer Tribunal and things like this. So tell us, oh, yes, tell net, us your plan. The Net Tribunal. But I was uh, I was about to introduce uh, some more important um, antitrust scholars than, than myself. But okay. so there's a piece out, there's a report out by the Stigler Center, and it, the lead author is Fiona Scott Morton, and she was joined up with a bunch of other um, antitrust. Uh, heavyweights, and they they reached a similar uh, conclusion with respect to this discriminatory conduct. They didn't think that it matched up well with with antitrust. They they thought there was a competition problem, and so they suggested the creation of a new digital agency that would police discriminatory conduct. Um, I I I was there originally, but after speaking with some folks uh, on the Hill and thinking about how to make this as as um, well as palatable. As, as possible, um, I, I have come to the to the to the conclusion that that in uh, giving the Federal Trade Commission a new source of authority to police discriminatory acts by a vertically integrated online platform uh, would would get you to the same outcome. I think that the the notion that um, now this is just pure politics, but the notion of getting uh, 51 uh, signatures on the creation of a new digital agency mm -hmm. is um, is, hard, is hard fairly far-fetched. But, but yeah. let me push back on your FTC idea because isn't it the case that the FTC already has very broad consumer protection authority, unfair and deceptive practices are enforced, and we've had major uh, – Google and Facebook have been hit with major fines and penalties and other types of restrictions, including 20-year privacy audits and things like this. So could your ideas potentially – 
take root at the FTC, given its amorphous consumer protection? I think not. And the problem is that unfair is so nebulous that um, uh, that FTCs are generally uh, reluctant to, to go after conduct that fits the unfair, including Democrats. I think that if, if discrimination means unfair, then, then kind of un- unfair could mean anything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think that, that they're going to act. And I really don't think that they... To be frank, I don't think they should act without congressional direction. I think that what, what needs to happen here to kind of uh, bring this, this fight to a close is that Congress has to instruct them uh, that they are charged with policing discriminatory acts by vertically integrated platforms mm-hmm. um, and under a new line of authority. And at that point, I'd like to see it as case by case because I'm, I'm open to the idea that uh, there's a, a large a slew of, of discriminatory act conduct that we should tolerate, but there is some that, that is going to be injurious to, to rivals and, and, and potentially threaten uh, innovation. Okay. Well, so, so I mean, it's certainly to, to House credit that, that um, uh, his uh, approach, if implemented at the FTC and with specific congressional approval, um, would entail, uh, you know, if it could be cabined at all, um, something that is narrower than the the possible expansion of, you know, unfair, which is how points out could mean anything. So, um, you know, relative to some of the alternatives one might imagine, like the one you suggested, Adam, uh, I think that Hal's uh, proposal has some benefits, but uh, it still doesn't answer the question why this is something that should be treated as a, a harm in the first place. Um, and the fact that Fiona Scott Morton also thinks there is maybe some uh, uh, any sorry some uh, uh, you know negative effects from discriminatory conduct does not make it so. There's there is I, I'll repeat literally zero evidence of this. And discrimination happens in every facet of the economy all the time, and is has long been analyzed um, uh, by numerous economists, and is almost unanimously considered pro-competitive. So it's not, again, it's not that it couldn't be a problem, but before we're going to create a whole new regulatory regime, which will invariably be um, occasionally mistaken and occasionally abused um, and will invariably deter some pro-competitive conduct, I think we have to have a better reason to think that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. How? Final word on that? Yeah. So we face down a nearly identical problem in the early 1990s when cable operators, vertically integrated cable operators, which were the dominant platform of that era, decided that they were going to start taking over the content side of the market. They decided uh, to form their own home shopping network and blow up the independent uh, because they could. And it became pretty clear that, you know, they could do this to any vertical they wanted. There's no, you know, what, what, what could stop them? They have the ultimate power. They control the eyeballs. And so Congress intelligently, in my view, decided that they would create an, uh, a non-discrimination regime. They housed it at the Federal Communications Commission. And they, they did these cases on a, on a case-by-case, ex-post basis. And the burden of proof was on the complaining independent network to show that it was the target of a discriminatory act, uh, and it suffered material injury uh, as a result of that discrimination. The material injury provision is really important because what it did is it effectively immunized small mom-and-pop cable operators from ever having to, to deal with, with one of these complaints, you know that you would never prevail on that provision. And so the only the only targets of these cases, and you can count them on your hand, right. have been the largest cable operators. But, but you want to extend this non-discrimination type regime to 
the internet more broadly into specific companies like Amazon. And you're saying it needs a new law, a new regulation, a new what? Right. When, by but extend. Hang on, hang on. Can I just, I want to just, yeah. one thing before Briefly, you. Briefly, because we're getting close to the end of the show here, buddy. Is, is how, um, you're, you're right that Congress implemented that regime. You're, you're wrong if you think that um, the fact that they implemented it shows that it was something that was harmful. I'm not saying that they couldn't do it. I'm saying there's a good reason to think they shouldn't do it. And the fact that they did it in this other area doesn't mean they should have done it there or they should do it here. Under Jeff's evidentiary criteria, Congress could never have extended it because Jeff would have insisted that someone travel into the future and make a determination that there would be significant innovation harm in, in the form of fewer independent cable networks and then travel back and say, hey, we got we to stop this. So but why? But, but why? So the, alter, the, alter, the alternative, Hal, is, is we don't need any evidence of harm. We just have a theory that says this could be bad for certain competitors. We have no idea if it's bad for consumers or bad for innovation or bad for the dynamic economy overall. But let's go ahead and, and, and um, make it illegal or you know, potentially illegal. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. I, I totally agree with you that these kinds of things are extraordinarily hard to prove. And so it really becomes a, a question of, what level of proof or what level of theory uh, is going to be required to to sort of shift us over this a line, this range in which we are always going to be uncertain? I'm not actually saying you have to have perfect evidence of what's going to happen in the future. I'm actually saying there's no evidence of uh, anything that would even suggest there is harm in the future, such that there's not a sufficient basis for for shifting the presumption or for or for making a, a uh, certain conduct illegal that isn't currently illegal. That doesn't mean there couldn't be, and I would not insist that the only way to do so is to, you know, is time travel. But you still haven't met. A, uh, but you but know, if you could travel through time, well, sure, that would be better. If you could do that, I would say that that would be required. But since well, Jeff, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to interrupt. We're get, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I want to give both of you one final chance to uh, tell the audience two things. First of all how to follow both of you on social media so that they can continue to hear this discussion, which I follow all day long on Twitter in particular, the back and forth chatter between the two of you. So really quickly, what's your Twitter handle and other ways that you would like the audience to follow you, Hal? Uh, Twitter handle is good. I, I'll let you know whenever I publish anything in, in Twitter. I think that's... that's a... <laughs> but you're, what, you, you are on Twitter as? Oh, as at Hal Singer. And Jeff, you're on Twitter as well and other social media. How do you want the audience to find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Jeff Manny, G-E-O-F-F-M-A-N-N-E. But um, I would say the better uh, place to look is both the, my blog, or on which I co-blog with a number of other people, which is Truth on the Market, and that's um, uh, truthonthemarket.com, I believe. So all one cool. word. And, and Hal, um, Hal, go ahead, uh, Hal, you said you had a publica- publication recently in the American Conservative? I did have a publication in the American Conservative on this point. Mm-hmm. And, and why it should appeal to conservatives, this notion of uh, right. preserving economic liberty for independent edge providers. Okay. Uh, Jeff, did you have something you want to recommend in terms of one of your publications? Yeah. So um, my, my organization, the International Center for Law and Economics, our website is uh, laweconcenter, all one word, dot org. And um, uh, it's pretty easy to find right there on the front page or uh, our research pages, um, re- recent things we've written. I would recommend in particular our uh, our comments uh, uh, at the conclusion of the recent FTC hearings on exactly these uh, sorts of issues. Um, we 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 made a, produced a large summary of the evidence that was presented and uh, and our assessment of it. 
Okay, great. Well, I want to thank both Jeff and Hal for joining us today, and I want to ask our audience to make sure they subscribe to the Fourth Branch podcast on whatever podcasting platform they enjoy using, and to make sure, if possible, to leave a comment on the show and let us know what you think. Until next time, see you later. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 